We invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 44th chapter of Genesis. We'll read in Genesis 44, we'll read through chapter 45, verse 15. Again, as with many chapters in Genesis, it'll be a bit of a lengthy reading, but uh, I think it'll be a bit of an entertaining reading. May be familiar to you, but I would encourage you nonetheless to, uh, to to listen. Let's receive these words not just as a good story, though. Let's receive them as what they are—the very word of God from the hand of Moses. <coughs> You'll recall where we've been. Joseph, his brothers—they are back together in one sense. They don't know it's Joseph, though. 20 years ago, they put him in a pit. They sold him to slavery. Now he's the head honcho of Egypt, basically. And uh, he's just re-met his youngest brother, Benjamin. He's been weeping a lot. He's been overcome. But he hasn't yet told them who he is. Now we get the big reveal this morning. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 44. We read this. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They, they said to him, oh, what if my Lord speaks such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Look, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. The steward said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what should we say to my Lord? What should we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Look, we're my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But Judah said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to Joseph and said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother's dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. 
Then you said to my servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of our Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we'll go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces. I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happeth to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy's not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he'll die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. God's made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Their friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask his word to endure and hit home in our hearts today. Father, we come to you as servants. We come to you, our Lord, like Judah to Joseph. Though we are brothers, we often feel simply like slaves. 
Show us that service in your kingdom is glorious, that you work all things in our lives beautifully, wonderfully, well. And above all, Lord, give us your son, Jesus Christ, our older brother. In his name we pray. Amen. I think I probably was too young the first time I saw the movie Braveheart. It's not really a movie fit for a young child, uh, generally. Um, but I think it is, uh, nonetheless, one of those movies that the uh, men's groups in the churches I grew up in always like to watch. Braveheart or Tombstone or movies like that. They all have one thing in common, those kind of guys' movies. It's always, I can always pick them out. What's one thing in common? Vengeance. Revenge. How many of us love watching movies about revenge? It's, it's the, the Liam Neeson movie. Right? Somebody gets taken and you, you, you enact revenge. And it's, you see, the, the good guy get payback. And at the end, if, if, if the bloodlust is not satisfied, if vengeance is not taken, you feel upset. You feel disappointed. Something is wrong. And here we have a payback story. Here we have what could be a revenge story. Here we have a story of possible vengeance. And yet, what's amazing in this story of a reunion of brothers after 20 years, instead of paying back his brothers, Joseph shows us a better way. The big reveal here, of course, in one sense, is what Joseph says in chapter 45, verse 3. He says these words, I am Joseph. I mean, that's the big reveal. That's what you've been waiting for for weeks and weeks and weeks. We've been waiting to get to this point. But in another sense, the big reveal isn't that dramatic moment. The big reveal is what Joseph seeks with his brothers. This reunion. This reunion. Without vengeance. I mean, is, is there a more dramatic scene in the Old Testament? Is, is there a more dramatic moment in the book of Genesis? Here are hungry, broken, tired guys. They're lying on their faces in front of the prime minister of Egypt. And this mighty foreigner, his voice is probably cracking. He calls for everybody to leave. And all the officials withdraw. And to their amazement, the guy starts to sob and weep. And his lips speak a name they probably hadn't talked about in 20 years. Joseph. I'm Joseph. We're told they were terrified. And this moment would be the moment that would transform their lives. What led up to that? What leads up to that statement? What leads up to that scene? And what happens after that scene? And really, I suppose the question for you, can you have a similar moment today? Can you have today? Something like this that changes your life so that you're not the kind of guy or gal who just wants to take vengeance. Can you have that kind of reality? I think it can. I think we're going to look at it uh, in four ways, four threads. We got to unpack four different threads and unravel them and look at them. And then we'll kind of uh, weave them all back together again by the end of it this morning. First, first thread, the thread of love. The thread of love, the thread of, you might want to call it gracious love, if you like. We see here, beginning in, in 
chapter 44, that Joseph is still playing this game. He's still playing the good cop, bad cop game. He's playing the game of loving his brothers when they have no love for him and loving them through testing them. He's been treating them roughly. He's been treating them harshly, and they've been treating them with love. I mean, just think about the story as we've come to it. He's accused them of being spies for an enemy nation. He imprisoned their brother Simeon, and then he invites them over last time for a huge feast. Love, harshness. The great commentator Derek Kinder puts it this way in a beautiful image. He says, the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. It's a beautiful image. If you see cracks in the pavement, you see cracks in concrete. How does concrete get cracked? Well, it, partly it gets cracked when you have huge changes in temperature. Hot heat. Cold frost. And what happens? The, it, the breaks, the, the bonds break. The stones crack, the ground gets broken open. And that's what Joseph is doing right here and right now. He's alternating truth and love, frost and sun. He's humbling them and convicting them and he's graciously encouraging them. It's a beautiful mixture of love and truth because Joseph knows that his family got screwed up because Jacob didn't follow that pattern. How did Jacob treat Joseph? All love, all affection. No boundaries. How did Jacob treat every other brother except for Benjamin? Boundaries, rules, no affection. Doesn't even want to call them sons. Truth without love, love without truth does not change people. But love and truth, beautifully, perfectly put together in right proportion, changes people. That's what Joseph is doing. That's what he's been doing, sun and frost. Now look at what he does. He's in the kind of frosty phase here, verse 1. Chapter 44, he's just had the nice feast, and they said, all right, let's fill their sacks with food, give them all the food they need, and put their money back. And also, verse 2, put my cup, the silver cup, in Benjamin's, the youngest kid, the beloved kid, put it in his sack with his money for the grain. You know, this sounds kind of like Joseph is being cruel, like a cat playing with the ball of yarn. Like, oh, I love you. No, I don't. No, I don't. Oh, I do. No, I don't. No. He, he, he's not doing that. He's not, he's not being vindictive because his goal is not a vindictive goal. Think about it. If his goal was simply justice, what would justice be for these guys? They put him in prison for 20 years, so he puts them in prison for 20 years. Slavery, 20 years. In other words, his goal... If his goal was justice, the first time they met, he would have said, hey, guys, I'm Joseph. Get them. Guards, take them. Imprison them. And that would have been it. But if his goal was simply love, if his goal was simply forgiveness and affection, if he was simply to pardon them the first time they met, he would say, hey, it's me, Joseph. No worries. Those 20 years, no big deal. Bygones be bygones. But would either of those have changed them? If they had been thrown in prison, would that have changed them for 20? No, it wouldn't have changed them. If he had just said, hey, no big deal, would that have changed them? No. But what Joseph is doing here, he's alternating the frost and the sun, the love, the truth and the love. And so this morning we read that he 
says to his steward, hey, go chase them and then accuse them of taking my cup. He's accused them of stealing his silver cup, his divination cup. Now, let me do a little side note here on the whole divination thing. Some people ask, did Joseph actually practice divination? I thought he was a Christian. I thought he was a godly man. Well, look, look at how he talks about it. Look at how he talks about it. <clears throat> the steward says, verse 5, Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? But then what does Joseph say? Verse 15, Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? The way they did this, the Egyptians, is that they would have these cups, and they would pour oil into them, and they would sprinkle a few drops of water, and they would read the pattern of the water in the oil to discern the future. It's kind of like very vaguely similar to the way if you go to Starbucks or a coffee shop, you get latte, and they may do a little latte art thing, and you got to read the latte art. It can be pretty, it can be weird, it can be something... Uh, it's kind of like what I had to do for some reason when I was rooming with psychology majors. They always wanted to use me as the guinea pig. And so they gave me the inkblot test, and I had to read and see what the inkblot says. Sort of similar to that. But how does Joseph talk about it? He's very careful. I I'm very confident he did not use this cup for divination. He says, don't you know that a guy like me could use this for divination? He never says he uses it. It's all part of the ruse. And, of course, the brothers are saying, we didn't do this. They're innocent. They didn't steal the cup. And, and they, they say, verse 9, look, it, whoever you find it in, whoever bag it's in, whoever backpack it's in, kill them. They will die, and we'll all be, this, we'll all be your slaves. And you can imagine they're searching. Verse 12, the steward's searching. He's searching. He's searching the oldest, the next oldest. He goes down the line. They're not there, not there, not there, not there. They're like, of course it's not there. We know we're good. And you get to the last one. You get to the best one. You get to Benjamin. Up, oh, it's there. Now, again, is this simply Joseph being a cruel guy? Think about what he's actually doing here. What is he actually doing here? What is his goal? His goal is to recreate the crime scene. His goal is to recreate the situation of his own betrayal 20 years ago. That's why it's a silver cup. That's why it's a silver cup. What did they got for Joseph 20 years ago? Silver. Silver from the Midianites. It's a silver cup. That's their payment. And, and he says... Verse 17, you know, that they say, oh, take us all, kill, you know, just, just take us all. He says, no, 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 far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, you can go back home in peace to your father. You did it once. You did it once 20 years ago. It's all part of the test. He brings them to the place. He brings them to the place where they're faced with the stark choice. Will they do it again? They say, we're your slaves. And he says, no, I only want one of you. I just want the beloved son. I just want the favorite child. It's a new betrayal. If they betray him again, hey, they save their skins. All they have to do is abandon Benjamin like they abandoned Joseph, and they will be free. They go home to daddy. And what's he going to say? What's he going to do to them? 
Benjamin had the cup. It's Benjamin's fault. Isn't it better if, if just one person dies and we're, we're okay? Why not abandon the next son of Rachel? Why not go back in freedom to their father in peace? They have the chance to stick it to him again. And so Joseph here is testing them. He is saying, have you changed? Has anything changed about these? We, we know he's not just being a cruel, sadistic cat playing with them because of what he always keeps on having to do. He keeps on weeping. He keeps on crying. He keeps on having to, to go to his powder room and powder his nose and wipe away the tears. He keeps on having to excuse himself and say, I'm sorry. I got to go to the loo. I got to go to the bathroom. I got to wipe off my tears. He keeps on crying because he loves them. He's moved by the sight of his brothers. He's moved by the sight of Benjamin. And he weeps so loudly in chapter 45 that the Egyptians hear. Everybody hears in Pharaoh's household. In spite of appearances, he feels intense love for them. And, and we'll see that it breaks them open. This, this love that's true, this truth that's loving, the sun that's frosty, the frost that's sunny, it breaks them open. I mean, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard people tell you something like this? Hey, I hear you, you go to church. That's a great, I love the Christian stuff. You know, you're saved by grace and you just keep on doing whatever you want to. Isn't God great? He just forgives you and you keep on sinning and he just forgives you. Keep on doing it. No big deal. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the Joseph of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible absolutely forgives you. He absolutely accepts you. But because he forgives you and because he accepts you, he won't let you be. He won't let you be. God is not the big ramp on the sky who's a little bit, you know, losing it and says, oh, do whatever you want to. In fact, the first lesson we learned today, I suppose, is that what, what feels like weakness, what feels like weakness in your life is actually strength in your life. What feels like suffering and hardship and torture in your life, which it was like for these guys, is actually God strengthening to you. Because as long as there's folly in your heart, as long as there's blindness in your heart, as long as there's fear in your heart, as long as there's selfishness in your heart, God won't let you be. Yes, he accepts you. Yes, he forgives you. But he's going to bring the world into you and its brokenness into you. It's going to show you that the brokenness of the world, the sin of the world matches the fear in your heart. And because he designs you for greatness, because he designed you to be someone who reflects his beautiful image, his holy image, he won't just let you continue in stupidity and blindness. He'll change you with the sun, with the frost, with the truth, with the love. That's what, that's what, that's what Joseph does. It's what God does. And that's really the second thing that we see here. We see that actually it works. This program of Joseph and alternating good cop, bad cop actually changes these men. He set them up for the scenario. And then verse 18 is really the hinge. They're going to respond. What's the response going to be? It's surprisingly from Judah. Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said. You see, once again, a son of Rachel's in, in dire straits, but this time they don't fail on him. They rally around him. 
They offer to be slaves. They stand with Benjamin. And of all people, it's Judah. Remember Judah? He was the ringleader. He was the ringleader of the betrayal. He said, look, let's sell him for money. I need some petty cash. Let's sell him for money. He was the cold-hearted one. And then what is Judah to do later on? He, he leaves the family. He leaves his father. He marries a Canaanite. And eventually he's exposed as a terrible dad, a terrible father-in-law, a terrible son, a terrible Christian. And he confesses that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, she is more righteous than I. And is this the guy you're going to trust right now? This dog, Judah. But he steps forward and he gives the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. He gives the longest speech. One writer says, this is the most moving address in the entire word of God. I'm not sure I go that far, but certainly in the top 10. Certainly a very moving statement here. He says, if your boy, if the boy Benjamin, if he's not with us, when we go back, he needs to be with us. He says in verse 26, our youngest brother needs to go down with us. And then he says in verse 30, this beautiful statement, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, he sees the boy, Benjamin's gone. He's going to die. If we go back home to our dad, because his life is bound up in the life of his son, he's going to croak. He's going to be dead. He says, look, Verse 33, let me remain. Let me remain in place of Benjamin. Me for him. My life for his life. I cannot go back without Benjamin. This is why you must let Benjamin go. Do you see what he's saying here? Judah is accepting his father's favoritism of Benjamin. Judah is accepting that his father plays favorites. The, the thing that they could not accept 20 years before, the thing that they've been stewing over for years, the thing they resented when it was with Joseph. Judah actually realizes Benjamin is the special one. And he, he uses that as an argument for mercy from Joseph. And so he does. For the first time in the Bible, we see one human offer himself in a place of another. Luther has a great comment on this whole speech. He said, I would give much to be able to pray to God like Judah speaks to Joseph. You see how Judah talks? He's always my servant. I'm your servant, Joseph, my Lord. It's the language in many ways of prayer. Luther says it's a perfect specimen of prayer. You see how Judah's been transformed. He's not judgmental. He's not harsh. He's not violent. He's not the man who sold his brother. He's not the man who broke his father's heart. He's not the man who condemned his innocent daughter-in-law to be burned. And so what happens after this? Joseph weeps. It's at this point, the third time, like Peter, when the rooster crows, for the third time, Joseph weeps. The dam breaks. And we come back to that moment, don't we? We come back to that great moment. Verse 3, chapter 45, the big reveal. I am 
Joseph. I mean, if you were the brothers and you see this powerful man sobbing before you and then he reveals I'm Joseph, what are you thinking? These guys have been, they've been scared out of their wits. They're, they're, they're jumping at shadows. Their consciences are guilty. And then they hear it's Joseph who's been talking to them. What are they thinking? They think this is not good. Uh-oh, he's going to kill us. He's going to take revenge. It's going to be William Wallace, right? Taking revenge. They're scared. And then he says, worst of all, verse four, come real close to me. That's even more scary. You can imagine the brother saying, no, you, you go first, not me. And he keeps dragging it out. He keeps dragging it out. And their guilty consciousness can only hear judgment. But what does he say? Mercy. Verse 5. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You have to ask yourself the question, why does he wait until this moment? Why is it the third time he cries? Why is it only after Judah speaks? Why is it now and not before? Why is this the moment? Oh, he wants to reveal himself because he wants to reunite with his family. He wants to reconcile with his brothers, but he can't until something happens. Until something happens. What happens? Judah happens. What does Judah do? He offers a substitutionary sacrifice. He steps forth. He says, let me take the blame. Let me pay the penalty. I, for my brother, I will bear the blame. He offers a vicarious sacrifice. Me in the place of he. That's the point at which Joseph says, now I can reveal myself. You've changed. You've been broken like the stone and the frost and the sun. You've been changed. You've been broken. Now, if Judah's substitutionary sacrifice was needed for one family's reconciliation, what is needed for you to be reconciled to a holy God? Well, it's the descendant of Judah, isn't it? Jesus Christ. Jesus would not come from Reuben. He did not come from Sibian. He did not come even from Joseph. He came from Judah. Judah is walking in the footsteps of his greater son. He steps forward. He offers his life, and it never is taken from him. He never has to go through with it. But what does Christ do? He offers his life, not just for one family, but for all the families of the universe. He offers his life as the son And he actually loses it. He actually has to go through with it. And that reconciles us. This is why God is both father and judge. This is why God is not the big grandpa in the sky. No offense to grandpas in the room. God's not the big grandpa in the sky who just is, is, is half, half, half losing it and just is saying, whatever you want, buddy. Just do it. He's not the. He's not uh, uh, just a, a senile father. He is judge and father, and he does not throw justice away. He throws justice in the heart of his son, because his love is bundled up in the love of his son, like the love of Jacob is bundled up in the life of Benjamin. And so Christ, in a sense, says to you, "In my suffering, I became forsaken." I became God forsaken so that when you suffer in your suffering, you are not God forsaken, but you are father loved because I paid the penalty.
Do you know that's the God of the gospel? Do you know that's when the big reveal happens? That's when the coin drops in your relationship with God, when you recognize the substitutionary sacrifice of another. But that's not even where the story ends, is it? Third, we see the way Joseph responds to all this. It's a big reveal in one sense because he reveals himself, but it's a big reveal for Joseph because Joseph realizes what God's been doing these last 20 years. Joseph had always been a God-focused man. He has been a God-focused guy from Potiphar's house to prison to Pharaoh's throne room. He has remembered God in every circumstance. But now Joseph looks back, beginning in verse 5, and he begins to interpret his life. Do you know that you have to interpret your life? Everyone here in this room right now is interpreting their life. You have to interpret the facts of your life. There are two types of people in the world, you know. There are fact people and there are feeling people. There are people who are driven logically by the facts. Two plus two equals four. Why don't you get it? There are people who are driven by their, by their feelings, by their emotions. And a lot of us fall into one category or the other. Of course, the Bible says that you're not a fact person or a feeling person. You're a person. You're a person who encounters facts and feelings, and you have to interpret those facts and feelings. You have to put them in a grid. You have to say, what do they all mean? What does it mean that two plus two equals four if there's a God who makes math and order and all things? And so what does Joseph do? He has to interpret his life. He has to interpret being sold into slavery for 20 years. And how does he interpret it? Does he interpret it as a bitter, cruel joke played on him by a sadistic God? Does he interpret it as random matter in motion? No, he first views his life through the sovereignty of God. Verse 5, don't be angry with me because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. Verse 7, God sent me before you to reserve. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God You see, over and over again, he says, God did it. Now, this does not mean that the brothers didn't do it. He says, doesn't he? You sold me. You sold me. God sent me. The text assigns the initiative to God without ignoring the actual evil of the brothers. He recognizes that God has been working. You see how he interprets his life and the way you need to interpret your life, the way he interprets his life is not starting with the problems. How how are you interpreting your week? What do you have on your plate this week? Problems that need to be solved? People that need to be dealt with? Is that how you view it, right? I need to fix that. I need to deal with that. Or do you start with God? The interpretation of Joseph does not begin with the people or the problems, the facts or the feelings. It begins with God. And because it begins with God, it ends in a completely different place than you and I tend to go. He doesn't obsess over the evil done to him. He's not replaying it in his mind. He can look back and say, your motivation to sell me, the merchants who came, all of this was God's will. It happened naturally, and yet it was God's sovereign will. His brothers truly hated him. They weren't robots. People chose it. Pharaoh chose it. The prison guard chose it. 
And yet Joseph understood the kind of sovereignty the Bible talks about without shame or embarrassment or kind of tiptoeing around it. The kind of God that the Bible talks about oversees the kingdoms of the world and each hair on your head. You see, this this doctrine of God's providence and God's sovereignty is not meant to be a cold Presbyterian belief. It's not meant to simply be a a, a mental thing. You're not called to be the kind of Christian who falls down the stairs and then says, glad that's done with. Now, the kind of God depicted here is a loving and a wise and a caring God who is ordering all of your existence. And when you believe in that kind of God, certain fruit results. You see it right here, don't you? You see it in real practical outworking. The fruit of Joseph's reunion with people who had sold him into slavery. You see, when other people are mean to you, when evil befalls you, you will have to interpret that one way or another. And most people see it either as a a random, meaningless joke, fate or the universe or my blood type or the stars or my, my genes just mean that I'm destined for this kind of life. Or you interpret and say, well, if God's really God, he's a cynic, he's a sadistic God. And so you complain. Your life becomes one big complain train. And you just kind of stand off and you watch life go by. Or, or you can follow this God. I mean, those are the options. You can follow this God. The one who looks out for you in every situation. The one who's always aiming and accomplishing what is best and wise and good for you. And you can follow him by faith. And you can trust like Joseph that sins done by people against you are not outside his will. He's not sitting up in heaven crying because he really, really, really wants good for you. But these free agents keep messing things up. A lot of folks believe that. And the world becomes really scary if you believe that. Because God is kind of impotent and can't do much. I mean, that's the test for you. And if you want a real test, you can ask yourself this question. Are you holding deep bitterness in your hearts? Are you constantly regretting your actions? Are you saying, if only I'd done that, then? That's the fruit of somebody who may say, I believe in a sovereign God, but actually distrust the Father who ordains all things. Or you can be like Joseph, who says, I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know my God. I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know my God. He, verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He understands providence. So what's that practical fruit? Mercy. He sees behind the sins of his brothers the hand of God. And because he sees the hand of God, he's not soured by resentment. He's not crippled by self-pity. He's set free from the evil that people do to him because he trusts the sovereign God. Doesn't excuse their culpability. He, he, doesn't, he says, y'all, y'all sold me. He doesn't excuse their culpability. He doesn't excuse their responsibility, but it sets him free. He's, he's not acidic. He's not bitter. He's not caustic. He's not resentful. He's not complaining because he knows his father in heaven is guiding him even in the valley of the shadow of death. And there's a fourth point, but I'm afraid we'll have to uh, hit that next time. It's a great point. I wish I could tell you about it, but uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to get that next time. Very briefly then, um, just realize that this is your story. I mean, this is your story. This is the story. That God has for you. 
that God shows you that frosty sun, that gracious love in truth, that God's design is for you to be reunited with him, that his severe mercies are full of mercy. That you can look back and see his plan in your life. You can discern his wise hand in all things to bring you to the point of salvation. That's possible for anybody today. Whether you've met Christ, you haven't met Christ. To bear this kind of fruit. Let's pray. Father, we come and we acknowledge your great work of salvation, which you sent your son because we were bound up in your love. You loved us first. We did not love you first. You sought us. And saved us. And gained for us a glorious life with you. And Lord, we know that you did that and you keep on doing that in bumpy ways, in ways that feel frosty or sunny, good or bad, harsh or merciful. Help us to see in all these things your sovereign, wise, guiding hand and to trust ourselves to you all of our days as your people, we pray. In the name of our older brother who gave himself up for us, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.